Well, good morning again. Um, As uh, Kim and Jean had mentioned, this is uh, the end of National Lutheran Schools Week. And what I wanted to do is use this as an opportunity to, again, ask the question, why do we do what we do? Um, Because when you have something like a school, which is a very large, sometimes unwieldy organization uh, that has a bunch of unique challenges as well as opportunities, it's very easy to miss the forest for the trees because it's easy to get like stuck in the weeds and, and just see you know numbers and dollar signs as well as number of kids and disciplinary issues and all this other stuff going on. Um, but to do that, we're actually not going to use the National Lutheran School's Week Chosen Theme Verse uh, because actually I like this one better. And I think underneath it all, it uh, gives us maybe something a little bit more. Uh, Paul, the apostle, says that he became all things to all people. And that is certainly one way to describe Paul. Other ways to describe Paul would be relentless. Absolutely relentless. Um, You could probably also call him insufferable. You could call him, uh, well, as the Irish would say, he had the gift of gab. He loved to talk and would talk every single chance that he got to the point where there is a story about him talking so long that somebody fell asleep and in process fell out of a window. They ended up, it's a long story, but they ended up being okay. Um, So really, in the story of Paul, Uh, which we can get both from the book of Acts as well as the letters that he wrote, Uh, the person that you would want to feel most sorry for would be that poor Roman soldier who he was chained to. Because, man, he I promise you he heard a lot of just constant talking. Uh, One of the impressions that we get, though, very quickly from Paul is that he was also extremely educated. Uh, He has this remarkable ability, when you read his letters, to effortlessly quote and allude to the Hebrew Bible, to the Scriptures. Uh, and, And he does this with such complexity that Paul scholars today, even today, argue pretty much endlessly over the ways that he is using certain quotations and allusions to stories from the Hebrew Bible. Um, and, and, and sometimes we even argue like, well, is this supposed to be considered a, uh, a quote? Is it not? And, and whatever. It's like somebody who knows movies really, really well, and the way they incorporate movie quotes is it operates on a very deep level, and so you've got to like kind of figure out, well, what are they thinking? What's going on in their heads? Why would they say it like that? Um, Paul, not only that, not, not only does he know the Hebrew Bible extremely well, but we see both in his letters and in kind of the story that encapsulates his life in the book of Acts, 
Paul also pretty effortlessly quotes and incorporates uh, Greek writers, um, playwriters, uh, like, uh, like the, the great uh, Greek playwright Aeschylus. If you ever had to take like a classical mythology class or something like that, you were probably punished with Aeschylus a fair amount. Um, he, he just seems to always have it on the tip of his tongue. He quotes uh, other Greek writers, Aratus and Epimenides of Crete, uh, in several places and in, in different contexts. He just always kind of has that there ready to go. You, you generally can't do that unless you are extremely well-educated. Um, <clears throat> Paul as he is traveling around, um, and as we heard in the reading in 1 Corinthians 9, it, and as he is explaining that he is all things to all people, he says he is going around doing this so that he might save some. And this is couched in his life's mission of proclaiming the gospel everywhere he goes. Um, there's a problem here, though. Because when we hear that he is traveling around proclaiming the gospel for the sake of saving some, that we will tend to hear that in a very modern sense. That he is traveling around the Mediterranean world in an attempt to help people have a conversion experience, a religious experience, a spiritual experience of some kind. Um, and in Paul's case, somehow related to Jesus. And those categories didn't really exist. Because for Paul, this gospel, or, or good news, which is what the word gospel means, is as much political as it is religious slash spiritual, as it is interpersonal. Um, the, the cultures in which he lived and operated wouldn't have necessarily drawn lines between those things. They were all kind of one and the same. Um, but then that leads to another question, because I used the P word, political, uh, because we will tend to hear about the mixing of what we would call religion and politics in a very different way, because really both major political parties kind of co-opt religion in their own ways, um, uh, at least in the modern day. Because for Paul, like politics, the way that you operate within your civil groups or whatever ought now to be totally reinformed and reimagined under this strange announcement that God has sent the one that he had promised to send. And he demonstrated that this was, in fact, his Messiah, his chosen one, by raising him from the dead after a very shameful execution by crucifixion. And for Paul, this ought to change everything. And so instead of going around just encouraging people to have kind of a private religious experience or something like that and maybe change their religious, quote, scare quotes, views about who they should be praying to or something like that, it actually goes much deeper and you can see this in the way that he interacts with 
everybody he encounters. For example, somewhat early on in his ministry, on the outskirts of a Roman colony named Philippi, he encounters a woman named Lydia, who we, we get the impression that uh, she's a very bright and very astute businesswoman. And she ends up fairly quickly catching on to what Paul is selling and becomes actually a very faithful leader and, uh, of, of the early church. And she ends up hosting Paul, but then the early church in her own house. Uh, she becomes an early church leader. She's a she. Um, you're probably not supposed to do that, culturally speaking. Paul doesn't care. There's a, uh, a line. He, he only gets one mention in all of the Bible, but he's, he's in some ways like my favorite character, um, uh, character, person, personality, whatever. Um, at the end of the book of Romans, which is his magnum opus, and again, underscoring the fact that Paul is extraordinarily well-educated, uh, we are still trying to figure out the book of Romans. If anyone tells you that they have the book of Romans figured out, they are either deceived or they are just lying to you. It is monstrously complicated. It continues to speak to us in various ways, in various new and surprising ways even today. But at the end... Uh, Paul recognizes or acknowledges his amanuensis. An amanuensis is a scribe, which means Paul is talking and this poor guy is trying to keep up with him and he's the one writing everything down. His name is Tertius. And that name alone tells us something and it speaks to an issue within the Greco-Roman world that, it, to be honest, is very uncomfortable. In that world, uh, you say you're, you're married um, and now it's time to start a family and have kids, your goal is to have sons. You want sons, especially your firstborn. That is the best. This is a good system. Now, yeah, it's, I am the firstborn son. That's why I think that. But <laughs> otherwise, it's actually a pretty terrible system. Um, and he would be the one to kind of inherit everything, run the family business or trade or whatever. Um, from then on, the kids you have are less important. Maybe you'd want a daughter. You don't want too many of them because they would be sort of more of a liability. If you have too many of them, the next time your wife gives birth or you give birth and it's a girl, you may just leave her out in the woods called exposure. It's a horrendous thing, horrendous practice. Uh, if you have more sons, well, that's good because they can kind of serve as backup if something goes wrong with the oldest, but eh, they're not that important. And the fact that this guy's name is Tertius probably tells us where he falls in that pecking order. Um, think about his name, Tertius. Think about the, how that, that name works. Primary, secondary, tertiary. He's born, and it's like, great, another boy. What are you going to name him? Third. <laughs> it paints a picture of the expendability of people. 
And yet Paul, transformed by the fact that this story that he is telling, that he is dedicating his life to, to proclaim and preach to anybody who will listen and including those who aren't going to listen, he's going to tell them anyway, is that if God gave himself up for us, then suddenly everybody has an inherent value. And so even though this guy, this scribe, Tertius, um, the name not only suggests that he probably wasn't seen as important in his family and was kind of left to fend for himself, it's potential that he was also a slave. Um, it just kind of depends. But, but in the process of composing what I think Paul would have recognized as his greatest work, he's like, oh, no, 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 we got to make sure... Tertius, put your name there, man, because you were a part of this. He, he will go around and he will find those who find themselves on the margins of society. And there were a lot. Because he believed that everybody had value in light of the fact that God is willing to give himself up for them. He will totally roast those who are part of his own tribe, his own group of believers or followers of, of Jesus, if they dare step out and start falling back into the patterns that dehumanize their fellow human beings. And I only say that because he's writing this to the, to the Corinthian church. And I promise you, if Paul had lived a normal lifespan rather than being executed under Caesar Nero, he would have looked back in his very old age and said, that church at Corinth took a couple of years off my life. <laughs> they were a mess. And it's all because he is so captured by this story that if God is willing to give himself, his own son, which is in a very weird way, his own self, up for the sake of everybody, even him who at the time was actively trying to uh, lock up and in some cases work towards the execution of Jesus followers, then maybe everybody has this intrinsic, well, uh, this intrinsic uh, meaning, this intrin uh, th th they matter. <laughs> Sorry, words are hard. I'm not like Paul. Um, Value, that's the word I'm looking for, intrinsic value. Now, for us today in the modern world, uh, the idea of human rights is, is just assumed, for the most part. And curiously enough, the idea of human rights and everybody having sort of an intrinsic value is an assumption if you throughout your life have been shaped by a culture that has itself been shaped by the Christian tradition. Uh, even though plenty of cultures, mainly in the West, uh, are, are sort of in this moment of kind of abandoning their Christian roots, which 
is what it is. The church has gone through worse. We will figure that out. Um, the irony is that they still hold on to this idea that everybody has this intrinsic value and that they matter. And, and it's just a deep irony because that all comes from the very roots that they're trying to abandon. So as Paul goes around and, and he, he is actively working against the Roman culture that values strength, they value authority, they value power, they value wealth, basically any way that somebody can amass enough that they can exert themselves over and against other people, that he's going around saying, no, 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 no. Who are the down and outs? Who are the people on the margins? Who have been kicked around? Because for you guys, I have good news. For those in power, of course, he was a giant pain. And he was more than happy to call them out and speak truth to that power. That's in part why he gets executed by Caesar Nero. We here at Christ Lutheran and throughout the country and really throughout the world, uh, as a church, have acknowledged that it is vitally important to invest in the upcoming generation. Not just to teach them how to do math and how to read and, and what science is and, and what, what it would look like to apply that science, which is where we get engineering, and, and how to do art and how to engage in our own hum, human just like impulse to create things and, and what it didn't. And yet, especially here at Christ Lutheran, but obviously we're not alone, we believe that those are extremely valuable and wonderful things because they all speak to this intrinsic and inherent value of raising children to know and love Jesus. Because everything we do, whether it be math or computer science or art or uh, literature or whatever we are doing and learning about, the value comes from the fact that we are seeped, steeped excuse me, in this story. That if God gives His Son for our sake, imbues us with value rather than us trying to justify ourselves, and then our mission is to invest in and raise the next generation who could then do the same. Now, I will end with this. Um, you could say, well, can't we just move past that? I mean, okay, sure, we all have value. That's, you know, thank you. Um, but what, I mean, do we need all that other stuff? Because this is not the Roman Empire. This is not a Greco-Roman culture that, that very much assigned value only to certain small groups of people who managed to 
have all the wealth and power and whatever? And the answer is uh, no. Because I don't know about you, but there are all kinds of messages floating around within our culture. Messages that question our value. Sometimes our value is determined by how much we produce. How many work hours we are able to sustain. How many man hours or person hours we are able to put into a project. Um, Our value is sometimes determined uh, by our status within the community. Oh, that guy over there, oh, he doesn't work, he doesn't really matter, but that guy, that's a businessman and he generates a certain number of dollars of employment and so on and so forth. He, he helps strengthen the economy or she is a, a, an incredible business leader, an organizer, and what would we do without her? But that guy over there, who cares? He doesn't work. Or, and, and honestly, this one scares me more than other things, um, if you have ever looked into like online parenting or motherhood forums, oh, it is amazing how quickly they will tear each other down because they're not doing things the right way, or they're not doing enough for their children, or they're not doing the right things. And I would submit that human nature being what it is, this isn't a Roman or a Greek problem. This is a human problem. We are constantly surrounded by things that will tell us that we have no value unless we buy this, do this, are involved in these things, or are able to do these or or contribute these skills to things. And to that, for Paul to become all things to all people, he would then echo what uh, the, the story that was handed to him, the, the Jesus that appeared to him on the road to Damascus, that said, absolutely not. You are bought by the blood of Jesus. You are loved infinitely by the Creator. And anything and anyone that would tell you that your val- value is wrapped up in anything other than Him is in fact a lie. And so at the conclusion of National Lutheran Schools Week and our desire to invest in uh, the, the next generation of kids who will not only excel academically but will also grow to love Jesus deeply, well, why wouldn't we do that? Because that's, that's some of the most important things that we could do as followers of Jesus. Amen.